Welcome to Harp Song, presented by Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions, bringing people together through collaboration, creativity, and community all through the arts. Thank you for joining us this week. I'm your host, Maureen Buscarino, and I hope to inspire you and to help you find amazing music and artists from around the world. I want to let you know about my other podcast first, though, um, that's premiering this month. It's called Beat Your Heart Out. Uh, it's where I interview legends from rockabilly, jazz, rock and rock and roll. Uh, Deke Dickerson will be my first guest on the podcast. Um, if you haven't heard of Deke, uh, you can look up his music. If you're a guitar fan, um, you can look up his past episodes of uh, his guitar, guitar Geek Festival that he would run every year in California. Um, I also would love it if you could share Harp Song uh, with your friends and family and to write a review. The first 20 people who write a review on iTunes, I'll give you a shout out on, on an episode and I'll send you some fun merch from Moon Over the Trees. So make sure to email me at Info at moonoverthetrees.com and include your iTunes name. I couldn't do what I do without the generous support of our listeners. Join us on Patreon for exclusive content, merchandise, discounts, classes, and more. So that's patreon.com slash moonoverthetrees. I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest. Janet Harbison is one of the most well-respected celebrators of the Irish harp and traditional Irish music. She has had a profound influence on the harp and trad community, teaching some of the most well-known harp players in the tradition, like Grania Hambly, Michael Rooney, and Louise Kelly. Her new solo album, By Strangeford Water, is a collection of Janet's compositions. The one you're hearing in the background is the title track from the album. This song is a meditation on the country and the landscape of Northern Ireland. There's also a, a companion book of the compositions on this album that's available on Janet's website. In part two of this interview, we'll get into her relationship with Kamek Harps, and the story behind the making of the Kamek Janet Harp and other interesting topics. So enjoy. I, th I, I actually, I studied uh, at the University of Limerick. I, I have my, um, you did. I did, yeah. I have my master's in ethnomusicology and I studied with, oh, good girl. with Michal Sullivan was my thesis advisor. <laughs> so, good girl. So what did you do your thesis on? I actually did it on one of his pieces that he wrote um Fillerish. like so he took the poem Fillerish and then he yeah. um yeah. did like a shadow style piece. i mean he he was a superb composer now he's a fascinating figure too because he wasn't liked by everybody but that's because he was dynamic and he was um he was also ahead of the game you know in that he established that department and that um facility down there in limick which is an amazing oh, facility yeah 
but he's an, an amazing, inspiring figure to oh, have learned from. Absolutely, and, and like yeah. he, he, you know, he, he would say that the, the university was on the banks of the Shannon, so yeah. uh, we're like the Druids. So we're this. Oh yeah, guy was our the roof, and the trees were the walls, yeah. and the you know, the earth is the floor, oh, yeah. and you know, he was absolutely. just. You probably met Noreen Irene as well, yeah, did you? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and Noreen herself is a bit of a Druid. I, 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 I mean, all of this is still very much in the in the the marrow of our bones mm. you know and uh, we may not um blag about it uh, because you know people will think you're a bit loopy um but we we understand the roots and the spirituality and the the history we know our history we know our history and we know what connects us and you know um i do remember the indignation of some of us when um, Thin Lizzy, which is one of the hardcore rock bands. Now, I'm a bit of a rocker. I'm a rock chick, too. Um, but when Thin Lizzy did a job on My Lag and Love, which is one of the well-loved uh, songs, I think we 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 choked <laughs> uh, that we actually survived the shock um, was something else. But it seems like a terrible... Uh, what's the word? Denigration, if you like, of the of the intimacy of that part of our music. Mm. Of, of course, we can grow out of that because the way that people hear the music, some people hear it purely as just a, a beautiful piece of music. Whereas for those of us that have grown up in Ireland, um, if somebody hears a slow air, you are, on, you are playing out the full text of the song that gave rise to the air. And the story is there and you would never be disrespectful in terms of talking over it or or cutting it short mm. um you know because uh, now some of the harper's tunes now were not um composed with with words but slow airs 99% were and um like who could imagine playing on a kun without knowing the story that's unfolding in the song because what you're doing is telling the story of that song in the music and um you, you would never perform it or you should you wouldn't be encouraged performance unless you knew the text right. because you are interpreting the story but of course we are we have detached the music from the story um in the current generation because lots of people are playing slow airs now that never related to the story or the song and that for me is a tragic disconnection mm. because it's turning the meaningful music that connects us to us as a community into something totally superficial and sugary. And uh, that grates on my teeth. But anyway, look, it's all music. Yeah, well, is it because you think a lot of people don't speak Irish and so they... they, they... Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I speak Irish. I was lucky to grow up uh, speaking Irish in, in an all-Irish-speaking school. And I've taught many people that don't have Irish fluency. And I'm just thinking of, of um, Ona Wan, um, which is one of the slow airs that I often teach. And occasionally I would find somebody who would be a great singer, but not necessarily somebody who could uh, speak the Irish language. So I would have to teach them by phonetics. Um, but then, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, however, I have always encouraged anybody, anytime I've ever taught a slow air, I would always follow it up with telling them, no, this is how, th this is a recording of either myself singing it or, um, you know, a, a recording that's on YouTube or, or a, a record, um, you know, uh, 
of somebody who knows how to sing it properly and um so that you can hear the emotion and you can hear how it should be presented because the way we do it and the way we phrase it is a bit different to how we would phrase it as a classical piece mm. so there is a completely different approach i'm actually writing a book at the moment on um trad for classical players mm. and vice versa uh so um and this is because it's not about putting somebody down saying that that's wrong that's not properly trad or something it's about understanding that there are differences because we have different value systems and um as a trad player do you play trad yourself maureen i do yes i i what do you play i i play the harp um oh, do you? I do. Oh, <laughs> that's why you love the harp and you've all these amazing people chatting to you and everything oh that's fantastic um, I, I'm sorry, I will acquaint myself with Oh, no, not at all. I, I, I started with classical piano and I studied yeah. classical voice, so I sang with opera um, at my university. And then I kind of, the, I, I felt like classical music, I love it, but there were so yeah. much um, restrictions on it that I didn't feel as free. And then when mm. I sat down to learn the harp, um, especially like traditional Irish harp, um, I just yeah. felt this relaxation and my whole body was like, oh, and I felt like, Especially learning by ear, I've just felt. Who did you learn from? I started with uh, Kathy D'Angelo. Oh right, okay. And then I took you know classes with with Grania Hambly, with Billy Jackson, Ooh, with yes, yeah, so you know, and on and on. So uh, some classes with Michael Rooney and. <laughs> you see, I'm so proud of them. Oh, I am they're so amazing. Proud of them. I'm like an, a, um, a radiation, um, uh, a radiating mother goose. Oh. And um, I mean, they're very sweet when they acknowledge me. I don't expect it, but it's always nice to get it. But uh, they're doing such an amazing job out there now, and they are, you know, uh, you know, passing on the tradition and to a world audience, which is fantastic. And I mean, Michael is is such a wonderful composer, and um, you know, I, I'm del I delight in having done something that didn't go wrong for them, and that. They, they have taught me more. I mean, in, in the preface to my first volumes, I, um, I almost, um, uh, with embarrassment, said that I should really give everybody their money back because they taught me so much. Mm. And um, to be their teacher was such a privilege because what I was doing, I did totally intuitively out of the tradition. Um, a lot of how we teach now it's not traditional this is, there was no such thing as a trad teacher um back when i started playing in the 60s mid 60s and um 1960s that was uh, so um you know we learned by being in the community it's like learning language before you ever went to school well we never went to school musically um as traditional musicians because we just did it um we looked at and absorbed from and watched and and uh, shared the values and shared the environment and understood the etiquette because we grew up in it. Mm. And it's like uh, it, somebody suddenly challenging you to teach English to somebody from Korea, for instance. Like, where do you start? How do you get about it? And that has been the journey for me because there was no um, uh, precedent i mean what i learned from my wonderful teacher maureen ferreter um was how to accompany myself singing everything that i did with maureen was all about self-accompaniment it was about singing and learning how chords worked and that was an amazing that was a great great uh learning because i, I started out 
accompanying Kaylee's and accompanying the sessions. Mm. And I learned all the tunes by becoming more familiar because I was doing my plunk, 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 you know, boom chucks, as they call it in America. <laughs> and um, I mean, after a few months of boom chucking, you know, I was in there with all the tunes as well. But, you know, it would have been a while before all that facility had developed. And, um, you know, I just wanted to be there along with everybody else in mm. the same way as they were keen to be there themselves, you know, because we, what we did, we did socially. But to turn all of that into a skill that we could teach mm. was something that wasn't traditional. And I think that often people make the mistake, they say, oh, because we play by ear, that's automatically digital. No, it's not. Because if you're playing a fixed arrangement that you got from somebody else, so it's no difference than learning that from a page. Mm. That's, cla that's a classical form of traditional music presented to you. Like, um, uh, for instance, um, in classical music, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. If somebody heard that and didn't know it, they would say, oh, that's jazz music. Mm. But that doesn't make you a jazz musician because everything up there has been done for you. All the nuances is set up for you. All of the um, tempo markings, the expression mm -hmm. markings, the notes for crying out loud, they're all there. So there isn't anything you are invited to add or subtract mm. from it. And um, the way people are learning now mostly is in workshops by rote which is a whole other, it's, a, it's learning by ear, yes, but it is not traditional. To, to be traditional is to start with the basics and then to evolve the arrangement yourself using a free uh, form of, of ornamentation and variation and accompaniment. Mm. I mean, none of that should be preset. I mean, it certainly wasn't for me. And I would know thousands of tunes. Like, I mean, there's nothing that would bar me now. And I get people coming to me who are eminent traditional players and they have about 20 reels you know, or maybe, you know, 10 jigs and two hornpipes. And um, I said, you know, how how you only have so many, how, that few? How, and they think they're doing great and they've got this arrangement and that arrangement and they've done a bit here themselves. Really? Mm. So, you know, you're, you're limiting yourself. Well, in conversation, it's like telling me that they've learned 10 pages of a dictionary. Uh, yeah, but where are you using that conversation? I mean, you know, can you converse? Mm. Can you interact? Can you actually be in community with the players? And an awful lot of players today cannot play in sessions. Mm. It's the most natural thing in the world, but they're not taught how to do that because they're not growing up in the environment. So they do need to have a structured leading into the into the um, the business of of being able to play. And and confidently. Oh, sure. I, in, I, in, a, in a session, I do love playing in sessions. And I, if it's a tune I don't know, then it's like, oh, let me see yeah. what can I, what can I do to accompany, you? and then maybe I can play a bit of the melody here or like an accent yeah. and and accompany Absolutely. them, not like take over, you know. Yeah. Um, like let me hear like the real, you know, accompaniment. It's going to be a little different than you know a jig or, or you know. Well, the idea is that you should be doing it for yourself. Sure. And that, yeah. that you should be playing it according to your own taste rather than playing a copy of somebody else's. Now, that's not to say that copying what other people are doing is bad because that's perfectly good to do. And it's sure. a natural thing for students to emulate their teachers. Um, but it shouldn't be that they only can play what they've been formally taught by ear or by any other means. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about teaching somebody a language so they can speak it Absolutely. and that they feel confident 
to commune with it, with the other tradition makers. And for me, that is absolutely the purpose behind teaching. Mm. And I'm, I'm trying with like sessions, which when people see a harp walk into a session, they kind of go, oh. <laughs> sometimes but then when I start playing they're yes, like or they could go oh, oh Carolyn all yeah. night you know or they, they, they might always be welcome because you know there are, are occasional it's like guitars you know you, you will sometimes get wonderfully articulate guitar players that listen to the chords and, mm. and listen to the tunes and get the harmonies right but then you'll get the thrashers and the bashers who sure. are just keen to thrash bash and thrash <laughs> and push the push the speed Unfortunately, you get the same with the harp players too. Mm. And sometimes you get harp players who are so limited. It's like kind of one accompaniment fits all. But when they do the job right, oh my goodness, is that triumphal. Um, and it is so great to hear good playing and to have people confident that harp players can do the business. Because we have a unique opportunity to do the traditional stuff in a traditional way mm. that is still also ahead of the fashion, if you like, um, because it wasn't traditional that harpers played uh, with Cayley bands. It was pianos played with Cayley bands. And a lot of dance music came from the fiddling tradition um, more than the harping tradition. But then the original players and composers of dance, of dance music were the harpers mm -hmm. after the fiddlers passed on um, with the dance masters to the different great houses and you know the fiddles um um did pass down but the harpers continued to provide the music for the grand ladies and gentlemen of the the great houses <coughs> and and um uh you know even the words for um jigs for instance a jig is perth dubleton in irish perth is a specific name that's given to a harp composition it's not um, belonging to any other form, any other instrument, but harp. Um, current fipa now for the hornpipes. That's that's a, a Welsh thing. Current fipa, and that's that's a direct um, translation. And it was that um, a ram's horn was used as, as a pipe hmm. for the dancing of current fipa or, or uh, hornpipes way back. And reeling was um, a kind of a Scottish thing. But uh, you know, even the words for dancing are um you know from our late introduction so i mean the whole idea of dance was quite a late thing but the harpers were the first to be required to fill in for these foreign dance masters that were the first to come in and service the the um the younger generations in the great houses mm. um it's a fascinating history i i love talking about as you can see it's hard to shut me up no no i, I, I but I, and then the the harpist played with uh the kings like they were the kind of like the historians and mm. um like the right hand to the king yeah well they had a partnership with the poets the poets composed the epic verse which told the stories of the legends and the the mythology and also the ancestry um and the histories uh, of the battles or the great love affairs or whatever and uh, the stealing of the cows and all of that um so and, and all of that was was passed on from generation to generation in the panegyric verse in the verse form but that would never have been um uh, performed without the harper providing 
the um, kind of emotional impacts in the music of the Gulthry, Gantry, Sonthry. And it's a style of music that we can only guess at now um, because it was, it was, it really disappeared in the late 1500s. But um, when the harpists started creating full and finished um, pieces of music and planksties and praise pieces for the new gentry in Ireland at the time. Um, but, you know, every so often you feel that you can still touch some of the history in the music, you know, which is when it's improvised and beautifully done by a really strong traditional player. Do, do, are you influenced by the the three musics? Um... Very much so, yeah. I mean, I um, when I started teaching more seriously, I established um, a training system, um, but it was recognizing what I called at the time the arts of harp. And um, the first one was um, Ganthri Suunthri, Gulthri Ganthri Suunthri. And that was, I called it story music as a subtitle because it was very much about illuminating. You see, I've done a lot of work with, with poets, and that would have included uh, Seamus Heaney and um, Michael Longley in Northern Ireland. I did lots of, of recitals with them. And while I, you know, they would say a poem, I would play a bit of music, they'd say a poem, and then they would ask me to illuminate a poem. But obviously I would need to know it um, more in advance. And I did come to know their their works well. Um, so I, I felt I was was using the the ideals and I was improvising to the ideals. Um, and it was freeform into improvising. It wasn't melody based, nor was it specifically harmony based. It was um, uh, it was something that just came naturally to me, really, um, because I was inspired by those guys. And I mean, I love the art of the word. Um, my father was an extraordinary uh, artist with words. He he wrote beautifully. My mother was an actual visual artist. She was an amazing. Um, art designer both and my father of course was a professional musician for a long time um, both my grandmothers were were music teachers one of them was an extraordinary pianist my mother's mother um, people forget that she was um, she was a great player and she was trained by Corto Corto was a was a very important um, European figure in you know as as important in Europe at the time as Marta Agerich would be now for instance um, a very dynamic person but because she was a female and she was never going to be taken seriously in music at least things have changed on that score now and um i am enjoying the fact that you know um that the world has become a much more liberated place mm. you know for for us female musicians mm. and i suppose this is why i'm delighting now in being able to be a solo artist in my own right but really i've only come into a place where I'm now not serving everybody else's needs. I'm just enjoying my own. Mm, but but you are setting up the um, the training for people to teach traditional. Yes, I have done. I have done. I it's it's the courses have been shelved at the moment because of Brexit, and you know the universities are uh, reticent to go forward with new courses at the moment because they don't know if their funding is going to come through, blah, 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 blah. So there's all of that. But, um, I mean, my teaching method has been going since 2005. Mm. I've just published, um, a new edition or an improved version, mainly because an awful lot of people are using the books to teach themselves 
or they might be classical players that aren't familiar with traditional music because these were the books were conceived as teaching aids for traditional teachers mm. who were already trained and teaching traditionally. And uh, at the Harp Centre, um, I trained a lot of people to be teachers specifically for traditional music. I didn't really get into teacher training that much in Northern Ireland because we had such a strong traditional environment already that the idea was to encourage people with whatever level of skill they had to get involved in the living tradition. But the living tradition is not there now, Mm. not anywhere close to how it used to be. And, um, you know, teenagers, there's two big things that have happened. Teenagers are fascinated by technology, as we all are, but uh, they're not interested in going to sessions. Mm. A lot of the cultists branches now don't have sessions for young people anymore don't do sessions and the older folk couldn't be bothered because there's also other issues where nobody under 18 is allowed to be in the pub Mm. after 9 p.m well what time do the musicians come down sure they come down at 9 30 right they're they're never there before 9 30 so now there's a total disconnect between where the music would naturally happen. It's all kind of um, caused a massive degradation of the tradition in its living environment. So it is it is now a more forced thing. And now I hear that there's slow sessions creeping into all the flas, and I just thought, oh no, let's kill the music off even faster because slow sessions, it's not about playing all the notes and, and slowing the speed down to accommodate the weakest link Mm. in the session it's about understanding that you just don't have to play all the notes you just play all the notes on the strong beats leave Mm. out all the in-between beats and be flexible but so many people are just not Mm. flexible i think so i enjoy to teach and completely undress that inflexibility and um now i'm teaching i do since since lockdown um, I've been doing a lot of online teaching and it's just, and I've been running, well, until we were told not to, I was running weekends and courses. I've been running these for what I've always run summer schools for younger folk and so on. But from the time that I, I um, retired from the Harp Centre um, 2016, I've been running courses for for adults and teachers mm. and also for people from the classical tradition because you know, I, I think that it's, you know, I would love them to get to know more about Irish harping in the same way as every guitar player wants to understand how to play Span- Spanish flamenco. Mm. I think that Irish harp music should have a much higher profile in harp music worldwide. Um, so that's really what I've been working on the last while. I see it becoming more and more popular. I mean, maybe that's just mm. this part. I'm, I'm just outside of New York City. So okay, maybe that's why, you know. <laughs> Maybe well, you're not part of a few um, good pubs up there that, that is true. Irish musicians in sessions. I think harpists get scared of sessions because they feel people are going to be yeah. playing super fast, and they like especially yeah. fiddlers when they take off on a. Why not? A they shouldn't have to play super fast. They just don't have to play all the notes in all the all the predisposed places. I mean, you know, it's all about dressing up and dressing down. Mm. I mean, you know, you can dress up and dress down any piece of music Mm. and it's about understanding how to do it and it should not be a big deal by any manner of means but if anybody's come up through the very fixed and very inflexible 
form of classical music education. They will not be able to do this. Mm. Not easily, but they can learn it. Well, and Eileen Gannon actually had a question she wanted me to ask you. Um, okay. So she wanted to know how you figure out the um, the chords that you're going to use or, or the um, the shapes of the chords that you're going to use when you're accompanying. Oh, that's easy. I mean, the tunes tell you the chords. And um, the tunes, I mean, you, you don't get to choose the chords. The tunes are already predetermined by the melodies um, and pretty much they're spelled out by the melodies um, and a lot of the time you're, you're not in a position to be making the choice but you can push the margins and it's a bit like using syncopation in, in rhythm. You can also push the margins with the harmonies um, but it's very much about seeing the tune as the centre point of what you're doing because the tune is the story and everything else is the fluff, is the is the dressing, um, and it's like a kind of um, a choir. A choir, if they're singing a song, they're all singing the same words at the same time, but they might be singing different notes, and they might be even singing with a slightly different rhythm or with a little counterpoint or something else. And uh, for me, trad music, it it it's, it does the same thing, but you've got so many different layers of of um, melodiousness going on you've got one layer which is the notes on that on the strong beats then you've got the uh the notes of the main tune itself and then you've got the third level of detail where you've got all the fiddly bits and um the ornamentation and variation and stuff and then in the bass clef you've got the standard issue of of using a drone and there, there needs to be a there is always there, there's a kind of a, a natural drone of the tonality d running under all traditional traditional music i mean there's traditional music now that's in keys that nobody ever heard of but um in in the old days everything was within one sharp two sharps because that's what all the instruments were got, were, were were set up to do i mean nobody ever heard of um a set of villain pipes in c sharp major or, or you know you know flutes don't like um the flat keys because a lot of them don't have the keys mm. uh, for anything outside of the one sharp two sharp range and they don't have f naturals um, so, you know, the music was not designed to be outside of that because the other keys weren't needed, they weren't important, they weren't relevant. But nowadays, everybody's stoking up kind of uh, unsociable music making by throwing keys, throwing crazy keys at things or doing things in F minors and, and um, or D minors, you know, with B flats and so on. And um, that's so, so unsocial. It's it's so not nice and etiquette wise it's it's all about ego. Whereas in in my day it was all about everybody collectively getting their energy and um fun levels and their spirits up. Um and everybody went home. Nobody went home from a session uh feeling downcast. Everybody's was lifted in some way. The harmony does it too. And the thing is you start from the 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 bones, uh, so the bones of the tune are the basic tune, but there's the bones of the harmony as well. And that'll be your one, four, five chords if you're in the major scale or whatever is happening because the tunes, you know, a lot of the melodies can can um, enjoy other and interesting um, chords in there. But the chords, the basic chording is dictated by the tune. But that's not to say that we can't be adventurous. Like, I mean, if you've got a chord of G, um, in a G major. If you if you put a chord of E minor in there as well, that gives you kind of a, um, a G major six, or it's an E minor seven. And um, but that little that incongruity between those two chords is quite a nice 
spicy moment to throw into something mm. where you might be expecting one, but it's enhanced with that little je ne sais quoi from the other. And I mean, um, so in terms of the cording, the first thing to look at is, well, what's the cording that the tune dictates for itself? Mm. Because traditional music always makes clear what the the harmony is because it you know a lot of the time trad music is um composed by a fiddle or a flute without pianos or guitars or harps available but they all have a very strong innate intuitive sense of harmony um but we can dress it and be it advanced we can also be boring with it you know so and there's the choice of the of the player so i mean if you've got an interesting player um, you know, that's pretty, pretty fine mm. to be inspired by that. And it's an interesting issue for session etiquette. And this is something I did teach because um, we often had international people at the Harp Centre because I ran a, an apprenticeship program and we often had Americans and Germans and, you know, people that wouldn't know the etiquette, if you like. Um and so I would have to say that, well, listen, what's a good idea is just watch how the musicians look at each other, mm. because we're all watching whoever led off the session. Are they going to lead off the next tune? So, you know, there, there's a whole unspoken communication going on there. And it's the same thing when you get a really good accompanist joining a session, somebody who, who knows harmony or player, you know, whether they're playing the tune or not, doesn't matter. But if they're doing something funky and interesting in the left hand, then uh, the idea is that all of the other accompanists will default mm. or invite that player to have their their head, you know, to be able to to take it away for one or two times through the tune, whatever. But then the idea is that the person who has given the leadership role while everybody else pairs back to the basic minimum, um, um, but all the melody players are still playing away, but they, um, you know, you that that's creative player then gets to shine um and then the idea is that it's a free-for-all somebody else can take the lead while everybody else holds back then it passes on to somebody else and if you watch the way that people pass mm. the lead on an awful lot of people don't tend to do it because they don't know what they're doing and that's a terrible shame because um then you know the good players are swamped out and the bad players are are or the poor players are are struggling away and complaining and um you know kind of nobody's stopping to accommodate their mistakes mm. and uh, um, and then they're thrashing away at whatever they think they do and they don't seem to think it's a problem to be thrashing and bashing with all the wrong chords and places and every so often they should be watching mm. the musicians' faces because if you see wincing going on, it's not that they've got a tummy ache. <laughs> I, I, know what you're, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> There is an etiquette. Yes. And maybe that's another book that needs to get written, you know, but somebody will write it. But I know? think a lot of people don't, well, I mean, especially, you know, in the States, a lot of people don't understand because we've had people show up with an you know electric bass with their amp and then he's like oh, yeah. playing all like jazz stuff really loud over the tunes and we're all like, oh, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. So what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? What? Do, you, do you watch, uh, what, what, do you know what traditional musicians do? Mm. There is an etiquette. There is a way of trying to freeze them out. But they won't. You see, people are nice today. They're not rude. They don't want to offend you. And that's really bad news because <laughs> sessions uh, really fall apart very mm -hmm. quickly. And I mean, you know, 
if there's any listeners out there that have friends who play the flute, just keep an eye on them because very often, you know, the flute box will be on the table in front of them and it could be open. And um, from time to time, flute players might might lay the flute on top of the box. Mm. And if they're listening to somebody, they'll they'll studiously ignore them and they'll talk to the person on the other side of them. And um, so the person who thinks that they're Joe Cool, you know, um, are playing the tune and they're not joining in, mm. That should be a big lesson, number one. Okay, the next thing is that um, the, the session's over and, oh, did you like that? That's a great tune. Oh, yeah, fine. We'll have a point again. Thank you very much. Okay, so the next thing is the start-up again. Oh, then the, the flute person takes the bit of the flute part and uh, starts putting one or two of the pieces into the box <laughs> where it belongs. And then they're waiting. And, of course, the person who's playing is getting frustrated because they want them to join in. Because if they if they join in, that is validating mm. them as having led off the tune. And they're feeling very special. And, um, you know, um, guess what? There's a, probably another pub two or three doors down the street. And, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to pop out for a minute, but I'll take my shoes with me. Thanks. Bye. Off. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. You know, oh. <laughs> you know uh, I'm sure you've seen that. Happen. Oh no, I have. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, you see, this is it. It's it's about it's about body language. Mm. And listening, like it, it, just like a jazz musician has to listen. You oh, know, yeah. when they're trading eights or. Oh. You know. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's there's a big correlation. Uh, um, and if I'm training people. Um, in the classical world, they understand jazz and they understand the free form of taking your improvs, you know. Mm. Um, and they, they are amazed because, uh, you know, jazz musicians feel their 32s very, very keenly, you know. But we do in the tra- in the traditional world as well. Our structure is very clear. So, and it's not a movable structure. That's just the nature of the music. Whereas you can find things getting, you know, very much more creative, if you like, when you have those jazz improvs. Hmm. Um, but structurally, they're still going to meet the same number of bars and they're still going to resolve properly. Um, their their chords sometimes are hard to make out because they've got sixths and sevenths in them all the time and hmm. they go into crazy places. Some of the modern jazz stuff is extraordinary in terms of the stretch. Hmm. Uh, harmonically, we can't go beyond the standards like six chords of a of a diatonic scale in terms of building chords and uh, so we are constrained there we bit but i know with my orchestra i've often done par- uh, pieces where i might have half of the orchestra with an f natural and half the orchestra with an f sharp mm. and i creatively work between the two so that we do get that kind of uh, a little more harmonic interest into the pieces but that's for staged music Mm. not for session music so for session stuff we just have to go with the flow so let's say for someone like me i do play in sessions and i you know play you know traditional music and all how could i get better at what i do just play more sessions and it's like playing tennis if you find a really nice player a good creative beautiful player that that does everything naturally i mean somebody like um martin hayes i mean you know and there are lots of superb uh players that are not professional players just super amateurs really fine amateurs um they will be known and they'll be celebrated but if you can find a really lovely player to play with that ups your game big time absolutely no question you know nowadays we can hear a lot um in terms of recordings, I, I, I'm kind of saying that with a 
with a proviso because there are some great players and when they create recordings, they they actually record stuff that they think their friends are going to be better entertained by. They're not likely to be playing the old tunes, even though their playing is beautifully creative because at the moment, people don't understand why we older folk get so excited about listening to what we would consider to be the extraordinarily fine players, whether it's Matt Malloy, whether it's uh, Martin Hayes or Joe Burke or whoever, you know, that, that are so, I mean, I'm just a whole flood of names coming into my head now of, of really superb people that I would adore to play with. Because it, it is like tennis. If you play with somebody good, it, it moves your skill level to a much higher degree. And um, I mean, I'm just thinking of Kathleen Nesbitt, for instance, who's a very, who's a modest fiddle teacher. You may have come to know her in Lockmore. She's a Tipperary lady, a super teacher. Paddy Ryan, another fine cultist fiddler who, who used to um, present programs and everything. But Paddy is a super lovely player. And I love, you know, the variations that they would come up with. And I mean, that just excites me. And fizzes fizzes my blood up um, um, to to listen to superb players. I mean, I love to go out for a good old aerobics exercise because there's a session here in, I'm in, based in the middle of the UK, but there's a big Irish community here in Leamington Spa and Coventry. And I know all the musicians now and we, we before COVID, we met up a lot. There's some great musicians in there, but I, I go more for a good old workout so that I'm keeping myself in practice. But to go that extra mile, considering what you were just saying, how do you improve yourself? Listen to the greats, because they have so much to do in terms of exciting your creative impulse. That's at the intimate level of really hearing their music. I mean, you know, to to have the blessing of of such great players that we can hear a lot of, like Martin Hayes, who's got so many things. Give me the real deal, unadulterated, straight up. Even Mihal O'Halloran on the, mm. on the flute. I don't know if he'll ever hear this. Uh, but he taught me so much. I love to listen to him play. And he's a fabulous teacher. I mean, he, he knocked a lot of the corners off me and taught me how to listen to the music. You know, um, because to hear the level of detail and to immerse yourself in the magic of it is is just that is the beautiful place to go. And that's as good as a great meditation. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is an interesting conversation we're having, because when I do my stuff, um, you know, on the album, what I was doing was music that I created for a specific audience. Mm. It wasn't music I was playing for myself. Maybe that's the next album I'll do. Oh, yeah. Is is music I'll play for myself. Because the album that probably means the most to me at the moment, even though the, the new one is out there, and I love, I'm delighted that it's I've made it available, and I have a book as well. Mm. So I've actually been producing the notes, mainly because... I get accredited with some of the pieces that I've I've created, but some people are making a right old hash of it. And I can tell you it's embarrassing then to hear, and this is by Janet Harvison. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, embarrassment. So at least now the notes are there. Please refer to the book, you know, and uh, pay, pay a few bob for it as well, because I'll tell you, um, you know, we're, we musicians are well challenged yeah. all of my concerts, and I just hope, 
that my orchestra tour next year is not is not cancelled because not um, yeah. you know yeah. I mean I'm I'm a performing musician I do uh, you know I'm delighted to make my my stuff available but my intimate music the music that I would play to myself mm. probably the slow airs mm. um, and I've composed a few slow airs myself but they wouldn't be rip roaring music that a public audience out there would warm to. Mm. I think because it's it's for that intimate stuff among those of your own. I mean, there's a the lovely group of traditional musicians I play with here. I mean, when I'm invited to play something on my own, I would probably play something that would be meaningful to me in that way because this is my community. Mm. These are the people that understand my language and music or my tradition, my heritage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, my audiences now are very mixed. Mm. I mean, I did have a life as a bit of a rock chick and I loved touring with um, Rudiger Oppermann, who's a superb German Celtic harp player, mm. but he's a real rock dude, you know. Um, but he liberated me in terms of letting the, the rock chick in me come out because I'm a trad rock. Actually, in Germany, I would be known as in a, for trad rock music mm. rather than hardcore Irish trad. And here... People are busy kind of cutting you out of everything, saying that, oh, you've had a bit of classical training. Mm. You therefore cannot be properly traditional. Oh, give me a break. Yeah. <laughs> but but as an ethnomusicologist, wouldn't you want to have like those songs recorded that aren't that are meant for you yeah. or that are played not with all the frilly bits that you put on a recording that would be in a session so people can yeah, hear? Yeah, but you know. you know what? Nobody, I, I wouldn't expect people to buy it. Um, and in a way, you know, I'm reminded by Dennis Hempson and what he said when um, he played his piece Fechenglis for Bunting, which was music from the old tradition, and you know, the, the nails on the wire strings and, and prelude music. He called it prelude music. So this would have been closer or the closest that we can get to Gultrig, Antri Sontri, to that earlier music that was non-specific. Uh, you know, it was improvised to those moods and uh, and it was improvised. You can see that in the transcriptions that Bunting made of Hempson's music. Bunting, found, so he saw this as Aboriginal. I mean, hmm. that's the word he used, Aboriginal Irish music, hmm. which is an amazing concept. I mean, immediately you sit up and say, oh, what's this? What's this? Um, because this is the window into that former age of hmm. harping that is got to be an extraordinary journey you know if if i could go into a trance and into another world and do the time machine thing that's what i want to do i want to get back there and hear what those amazing harp players are doing um like uh carol dalek now um i'd love to know more of his music but mm. you know i just have to imagine that i'm communing with him in my dreams but anyway he he was saying that who now understands this music there is nobody with the ears to understand this music and he was very reluctant to play more for Bunting because he knew that Bunting wouldn't understand it, number one, uh, or be able to make sense of it because mm. it was such a movable feast that um, Bunting wasn't going to be able to throw the dots on the page fast enough. And then on the second hearing, he wasn't going to be able to understand that there are nuances and variables and, and you know, the ornamentation happened so speedily and and uh, subtly that um he knew that bunting's ears were never going to be able to 
get around it. I mean, Bunting was 19 years old. So even though he was a very fine classical musician at the time, highly, highly celebrated, and uh, Bunting himself was, was very amenable. He knew there was magic in this, but he was still too young. He still didn't have enough depth or time to uh, absorb what was the f magic in there. Hempson knew it. and uh, To an extent, I kind of feel a small bit like I understand that because, you know, if I was to play, uh, you know, some slow airs in a pub or in, in, a, in an environment now, even with my traditional music friends who are all fiddlers or button accordions or flutes, they're mostly dance music players, they'll enjoy me to play one verse mm. of a slow air. But then they lose interest because it don't, they don't know the text of the song. They don't know the song. Whereas I'm singing it in my heart all the time. Mm. And I mean, when I'm back west, I spend a lot of time actually in County Clare. I mean, my, my family are County Kerry, but actually socially, I spend a lot of time in County Clare. And my my harp weeks, I used to run them all kind of in between Doolan and Kilfenora and Lister Varna. And um, I would spend a lot of time out with my friend Vihal <laughs> out on Inishir. And uh, now with Hall, absolutely no question. There's an audience and I will play that intimate music. I also play a lot of impro uh, pentatonic improvisation um, in healthcare, especially for mental, uh, mental, mentally challenged mm. and mentally handicapped people, um, which was a big interest I had in the early noughties because a number of my uh, apprentice uh, harpers part of their program was to do palliative care harping. This was something that's very dear to me because uh, I always would have a little bit of time in my weeks devoted to to service, you know, to just volunteering, if you like. Um, and I should be volunteering in our local hospice here in Warwick, but sure, with, with COVID, nothing is happening. I, I feel, I feel, so there was always a give back element um, to doing this. But over the years, I've, I, I understand how energy and music works with people. And that's, that's a music that would bore people that are healthy and vibrant and looking for a decent tune and they mm. get up and clap and sing along, or whatever. No, this music is for meditation or for prayerfulness or for restfulness and introverted quietness. Um, and that's another style of music that I love to do. Mm. Uh, the last track, in fact, if you, if you want to have a listen, the last track on my prayer album, I did an improv, um, mm. and it's just called Prayer. And you might enjoy that. It's a pentatonic improvisation. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, um, pentatonic scale is so useful for um, oh, yeah. for teaching, especially young young, young students, or oh, yeah. for improv yeah. improvisation or for healing. That's just about I'm just about done. Um, called a book of pentatones. Oh. You know my book of chimes. I don't yeah, know. You yeah, yeah, yeah. I have chimes. that book. Well, I yeah. chimes. Sure. Yeah. And my book of chimes was my was the first manual of of technique technique training for trad players mm. but it's for anybody i mean obviously but uh, it's really about helping trad players get your four fingers moving rather than just doing one two one two mm. one two three one two three no we get all four right in from the start and um so i mean most people would be aware with the the chimes that everybody starts with um but there's a full program it, there's there's um i think it's 30 exercises of chimes but there's also book of pentatones and this is for the next level of agility training which i i use um and that's actually about to come out that's 
uh, three quarters ready. So oh, it might be out great. by Christmas. Um, it's actually in my new catalogue. But these are just training, like um, teaching people how to get into cording, you know, because an awful lot of people now are coming halfway through their training. They're not doing it from the beginning mm. when, when they're open to everything. Um, they might be jumping in, having already done 10 years of classical training on the piano or something, you know, where they've already had their habits formed. Mm. Um, so, you know, a lot of what I did over the years was to try and help people take a step-by-step -step approach into an intuitive way of playing where they're not trying to intellectualize all the time, that it's still coming intuitively to them. Mm. And um, I actually have my background is in music and psychology. I was obliged to take another subject mm. uh, when I did my first degree because it's an arts degree. Um, and I took the one with the least number of, of lectures. <laughs> But I ended up being fascinated because I understood about oral perception and I I have I, I've always had absolute pitch and you know I would have a lot of music games with my grandmothers and my father and you know where other people were doing crosswords I was uh, listening to a piece of orchestra and writing down the what the oboe was playing or what the um, the uh, violins were doing you know and this this was this was a game for me <laughs> so um yeah i never got into the crosswords but i did get into scoring hmm. and um you know my father would come home and look over my shoulder and said yeah but that's not actually that's the oboe there that's not the clarinet <laughs> and um so and and this is just developing your ear and your, your the depth of your listening ability and um you know jumping into a, something that didn't come as you were growing, you know, in terms of your, your normal learning, it does need to reference then what your all rules of operation are already. So, um, like, for instance, if I'm training classical people, I will explain things to them in classical terminology. Mm. I'll talk about motifs and I'll talk, you know, about inversions or whatever. Whereas with trad people, we talk about bits of melody. Mm. We talk about uh, positions of chords. And that's to do with the fingering and not to do with the shaping, considering the bass as well. It might just be the triads that you're using in the right hand. Um, and so I start off everything from the simplest, from the bones, the basics. And then we build skills, mm. build them bit by bit. And so that's what my method is about. It's really about building those skills for intu toward intuitive playing where you're not concerned or intellectually trying to analyze what you're doing mm. or whatever and it's about you know to look at my learning books with the trad learning books rather than my graded because I've just produced a series of graded books for classical people so all the arrangements are artful arrangements they're satisfying artful arrangements but they're not straightforward uh, like you'll find there's lots of different inversions you'll find a few counterpoints in there and nothing's explained as it wouldn't be in classical music. So because this is bringing Irish music to the classical realm, if you like, and the sylvae for the different classical music colleges. Mm. But in the traditional um, method, uh, the, the, everything starts from basic root positions. So it's boring, mm. you know, and it's not nice music, but then we would never leave it in, in, a, in, a boring, in a boring place because we would start doing funky things with those chords. And it's about understanding where you can move with them. Mm. So you take them to first position. You might uh, walk the chords, run the chords, jig the chords. Uh, and we've lots of very, very technical things like 
when we're doing exercises in jig time, we don't call it jig time, we call it banana time. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and we do, uh, I mean, if there's a tricky piece of rhythm, um, then I will find um, a verbal line to go with it. So I take the first uh, phrase of the South Wind. Da 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 dee da 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 da. Okay, so you've got the da 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 da. Some people don't hear timing and they hmm. don't feel the energy of rhythm. It, it, they have to intellectually kind of count and it never hmm. it never gets into a nice flow. So um, and I say, I love my dog and he will eat my tea or something. <laughs> people are much more tuned into learning rhyme and rhythm through word usage. Hmm. And uh, so I do relate things back to that because I am dealing with people with already set patterns. So in a way, what I did with all my own students, I did a much more intuitive approach to it. But my books are rewritten now this year with much more self-explanation so that classical people coming to it will not feel like they don't understand why it's such a boring arrangement because... And also, you know, if you... if, For instance, even with that piece, The South Wind... There's about 10 different versions of it, but you're not going to write them all down because that's going to take up a whole book on itself. Boring, you know. Um, um, but then how do you explain to somebody who doesn't understand what we do in terms of growing a tune, um, you know, when they have to have everything laid out in notes in front of them? So in a way, I'm trying to manage that balance. That's why I've got the two, uh, the two series now. I, I think a lot of people yeah. you have to give them permission to improvise because I think especially coming from the classical yeah. mm-hmm. uh, tradition, it's like no, no, I can't. And to take the music away and say like just improvise, I think is sort of they get into a panic. But once they get into it, yeah. I think it's it's because oh, yeah. Mozart and Chopin and and all they. Yeah. love to improvise so yeah but th- we don't have their improvisations no, um, no. You know, because what they put in the notes was a fixed and final um instruction because when you put something on on paper you don't do it for your own interest mm. you do it because people want to play your music so i mean I, that's a lesson i've learned and because i mean none of my stuff was put in script until i until somebody else needed it mm. it's the difference between formal and informal should all be informal musicians as well as capable of playing formal works and um i it, it's like that conversation going back to the ideal of language again i mean why would you ever learn a language if you're only ever going to use it from the phrase book mm. you're never going to be able to say everything you want from a phrase book and that's about taking time and looking through the book, finding it, and then being able to say it and work out. And, you know, you can't converse with a language if it's stultified and put into note-only form. And this is where I think classical music can really enrich itself Mm. by integrating elements of what we naturally do, which is improvise. And, you know, one thing that used to be very hard for me still is is to play all the notes that are on the page because Mm. I'm improvising all the time. If anybody spots the difference between my recordings and what's in the notes, (laughs) you might get a bar of chocolate. (laughs) Find the difference. (laughs) I'll be on the lookout next time. (laughs) 
but I, 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 I always bribe with chocolate, you know. No, no, I think it's a really great way. That's what I, I, I bribe my, my students with. Uh, we have like these little donut treats, so like little donut holes. And so I bring them like a Ooh. box of that for a Saturday morning rehearsal. <laughs> Naughty. I, I'll be there. So, yeah, exactly. So they were like, where are the donuts? You know? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Good. And so. I used to use Smarties. I don't know if you know Smarties. Oh, sure. Yeah. And they're, they're like M&Ms. I used to give Smarties to all my students if they got really sore fingers. <laughs> However, there was a little bit of a ruse going on. And, you know, the Hambleys and the Roonies will tell you this, <laughs> um, is that the kids would lick the red ones and then paint the red on their fingers. And they said, listen, John, we need more Smarties. We need pills. <laughs> we're sore. You look at all the practice we're doing. Not. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I guess like coming around, but um, that... Y- Last year, it was last year, it feels like it was 10 years ago, um, last year at Somerset that you sat down with Grania Hambly yeah. and, and played Bright New Morning. That was totally not rehearsed, you know. I we know. played together for 20 years. I know, yeah, I was the one like running out, like, are they going to do it? Are they? Because <laughs> I was oh, managing really? the concert. Oh, yet, so. But you see, this is it. We're very comfortable. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, over the years, people will change a few odd notes but we're not fussed about that because the spirit of it is absolutely mm-hmm. is absolutely clean and clear and that was such a joy because Grania's gone on and created a phenomenal uh, path for herself you know the pastures are very green in America and of course um, her partner is, is such a gorgeous fellow as well and of course he was already very well established and based in Carolina and North Carolina and um, I mean th- that that was a wonderful opportunity for her to bring if you like um what we do to a greater world audience you know that was you know because there was from what i gather i mean i used to go over quite a lot in the irish studies environment and my trips and various things with cultists and so on but there was quite a celtic twilighty type of environment of where the harp had been I think it was it was my generation and you know people of my age like Morty Hasek and so on, um, who is an is an extraordinary player. She was always, in a way, the unadulterated hardcore traditional player. Whereas I was quite gregarious because I would have had classical training, but I also played jazz. I had my own jazz band when I was um, in college. I was also playing rock music and bands and so on and touring with mad people um but uh she was uh, she was kind of the real deal and her her traditional playing is absolutely stunning stunningly beautiful and really really superb but she and i were really the icebreakers or that's certainly how it seemed to me because uh she was out there plowing her furrow as well those of us coming after or the the people coming after we're going to find that the audiences were now open and expectant Hmm. of beautiful traditional music and in a way the next generation were going to be the ones that were going to really enjoy it because the audience is there it's Hmm. been made for them yeah this is great because this is evolution yeah a positive evolution i have to say i feel very proud to have played my part in it and it's been it was it was a journey that where the kids taught me how to serve them mm. and I knew the world that I was looking to set my babies free in you know um and it was quite a quite a, a labor of love on every different direction because traditional people <coughs> traditional players were quite resistant to the heart to start with because they associated it with 
the medieval banquets and mm. ladies and wenches in crazy Irish Colleen costumes and cabaret stuff. Mm. So we had prejudices coming at us from everywhere. Um, and if it wasn't the traditional me in classical music um, environment in Trinity College, getting myself a nickname, which hurt terribly because, you know, for me, I was proud. I was proud to play my national music because that was my ethnic identity. Mm. But, you know, that's what I was. I learned to become schizophrenic in musical terms. Um, but I was determined that the next generation would not be carrying those prejudices. and. Thank God they're not. Yeah, I'd see it growing and 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 younger and younger people playing and you know uh, yeah. people like Robin Gordon Cartier. Um, yes, I know. You, Robin. Do you know her? Yeah, uh, with her, I do indeed. Her heart Actually, program. Was, she and I, we did some collaboration at Somerset. Oh, right. And I've met her at a few things since. Yeah, but she with her the program that she has at her her public school, and then yeah. you know, and then Kathy having the the youth harp orchestra every. Year oh, Kathy's Somerset. a youth harp orchestra now, is she? She well at at uh, at Somerset, we do like the Somerset Youth Harp Orchestra. So well, they all started here. I know, yeah. So uh... <laughs> will I ever get the credit for it? Oh, oh I'm sh- well, I'll give you the credit and hit. <laughs> well, will you be sure and tell Kathy I'd love to come again? Oh my gosh, I would. I, I if I hope we're going to be in person soon. Oh, I, I don't God, know about this that year. Be nice. I, and um. You know, the lovely people at CAMAC, and I know that that was in our agenda to yes. chat about, because oh, Joël yeah. Gagné, I used to play, I used to, I mean, I did all the festivals in France, from Dinan, um, for the Festival International, the, the Lach Celtique, um, that was organised by Mirzine, who had his 50th anniversary, well, I was in there pretty much from year one, um, and I did about 20 years of being shared, I was shared between Lorient, and Dinan and uh, Cornwallia, uh, which was in, um, which was Dominique Bouchot's festival. That's where I started. Because the first time I went to France, I did a competition. It was the Canner Bubble, uh, the new compositions for harp uh, competition. Uh, that was 1985. Myself and uh, Dominique Bouchot won that. And um, the prize for, for that was a flight from Dublin to France and back and a flight from France to Dublin and back. So I went to visit um, uh, Dominique Bouchot at Cornwall, who did his festival for me. He created a festival around the class for me. And that was the beginning of that. And then I brought him to Belfast. <laughs> and that's kicked things off in Belfast in terms of our international harping stuff. But uh, when I started in France, immediately it just took off because uh, Alan Stevell was already doing great with the Brendan Voyage. I don't know if he had an association with it. Um, because the first performance of the Brendan Voyage, he had done the first, the support gig, and the Brendan Voyage was performed. That was at um, at uh, Lorient. Mm. And uh, so every year I was there for, I did at least one, if not, not both of the main festivals. I taught at that for about 20 years. But in the course of the 90s, Joel was always very charming, and he hated that I played an old Japanese, crack, cracked out <laughs> Japanese harp. And he said, you should play a proper instrument. And I said, I play a perfectly fine instrument. I love my Japanese harp, thank you very much. Um, and he, he, he said, look, choose anything from my showrooms, my, my, um, my gallery. And he invited me to Paris and we had a lovely dinner and I hated all his harps. Um, 
or there was something about all of them that I didn't like. Either they were too pointy or the, the stringing was too strong or mm. it was too broad and it, the weight of it was too heavy on the shoulder and, and uh, too high. And all blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so um, he said, well, what's your dream harp, Janet? And uh, so it was, I can't remember what year exactly it was, 93 or 94. Um, and that was at Dino. And uh, I was made an award, a special award. And he was the sponsor. And he said, I should have the harp of my dreams. Oh. And I said, um, well, I love this about this harp and I love this about that harp. But really, the harp of my dreams isn't here yet. So he said, uh, well, let's create it. How should it look? So I had a 10p Irish coin and I said, well, that's the Brian Brew harp and this is the shape, but I want 34 strings. I want it sitting on the ground. The center point of gravity should be here. The string spacing should be exactly as it is on my Japanese harp, which is designed to the older harps because the Japanese harp, the Aoyama harp was designed from my harp room. Um, he, the, the fellow that made the, the first generation of harps, did a survey of all of the harps in our our no he may have gone somewhere else as well but iron harp room in sign hill would have been the most we were known as the harp farm because hmm. all the great harp players mary o'hara kathleen watkins Derek callahan all of the harp players of the 50s came out of our school hmm. and i was in the last generations of players coming out there but i mean all of all of the generations all of the classes produced players that went on to make a career of what we learned and um um but the Japanese guys came and they measured up all of the strings. Now, my father was very friendly with Morchin McCullough, who was the main importer of musical instruments in Dublin. And um, Morchin gave my dad a harp and said, listen, try this out. We don't know whether we're going to stock it because it's Japanese. And everybody in Ireland seems to think that an Irish harp can only be made in Ireland. When it did arrive, it was it was functionally superior to everything that we had. And it had this lever system, which allowed us to make much more more competent key changes but i was playing that harp for a long long time and um but i knew what i needed i mean uh to be comfortable for me as a trad player and not a classical player so um he said i'll give you everything you want you tell me what you want hmm. then he produced the next time he invited me back to paris the next time he passed me he had a prototype made up and I said, right, next thing is, I want my bling. I want my bling on the front of the harp because even in the Brian Baru harp, there's a silver frontispiece. Hmm. And it, um, I want it because I'm pretty mobile when I'm performing. And I like to flash back the lights that are coming at me in the audience hmm. because, you know, I, I'm good, like, I like to rock and roll a bit. He gave me my bling and uh, he chose to call the harp the Janet. And oh. that gave me a five minutes of embarrassment. And then I thought, oh, thank you very much. That's nice. And so a few prototypes later, and um, I have the harp, and I have quite a few of them now, and there are lots of them in different parts of the world because I hate having to mm. to travel. And this is my baby. Oh, it's gorgeous. And this is the walnut one. So they come in walnut or in, in um, maple. Mm. And um, for me, this is just... Wow. Um, the tone is, is everything. It's mm. fabulous. I, I've had a few Larry Fisher harps as well. But um, I'm a strong player, and for me, the this one gives me a little bit more bite. Mm. And also, because I, I do a lot of drama stuff, you know, the piece Viking on my album? Mm. So, I mean, that's kind of like a... Oh, you know. yes. So I can do a lot of that, which you can't do. You couldn't 
I mean, you know, the, the touch is, is much lighter mm. on, on, a, on a Fisher harp. Um, but I have my Fisher harp and I bring it to my sessions all the time, you know, so because it's it's lighter and mm. easier. And uh, but for when I'm doing my serious stuff, sorry, I, but uh, this is the one that I choose. So and I, yeah. Joel, I promised him, I said that if I love the harp, I will compose you a tune. Mm. Terribly, unfortunately, uh, he died um, in the middle of, of making it and a number of years after, about three years after he had died, because uh, I thought our dream, the dream, my dream harp is has gone to heaven with Joël. But uh, Jacques Francois, who, who um, took on the management of Camac after Joël, he found the, the, the plans on a computer and decided to make up a representation of the harp, which he brought to the World Harp Congress when it was in Dublin. And he asked me to give my opinion of it. And I, I he'd made some changes, which I wasn't fond of. And I wrote to him afterwards and said, listen, this was Joel and my, my dream. It, I am not interested in a 31 string instrument. That's not an instrument for me. Uh, you know, if you want to do something for your players in France, um, uh, Call it something else. Don't don't call it. Don't don't use use this. This was um, a design that was made for me, by me with Joël. Mm. Jacques then uh, said, "Right, well, let's let's see if we can improve on the, because the, it was a bit heavy to start with." And I said, "No, it's got to be light." And um, I'm, you know, my back is broken from from yanking harps <laughs> in and out of cars all my life. Sure. And I said, uh, "It's got to be, you know, less than eleven kilos." Now, at this point, um, I, I don't think um, Larry Fisher was already making his harps because the, the big maker of harping, harps in Ireland at that time was Larry Eager in, in Cork. I was keen to kind of get away from the more modern shape and get back to the, the bow harp, mm. you know, where the top um, right. part. So, because to me, that's the quintessential um, Brian Brew Irish mm. harp, the high-headed Irish harp without the big point, not the big pointed one. That's the Carolyn mm. harp. So, because there's been quite a few evolutions in different styles. But the, the Brian Brew one is the one that inspires me. I, I think that is, well, it's our national emblem and it's a beautiful shape. I I, I, I love the, the balance and shape of it. Anyway, I composed the piece um, for the 10th anniversary of Joël's passing. And there was a big concert in Paris, um, in Paris, um, hosted by Jacques, and he asked me to come along and play the Jeannette, and of course I was pleased to do so. And I don't think they really, you know, I don't think they thought that there was going to be anything other than a cheesy little tune for for Jacques. Um, but it did seem to make its mark, mm. uh, and uh, so that's it for the first time in print, and it's the first time that I I recorded it. So uh, there's a lot of things there that are absolute first, but then there's also some tunes on the album that are solo versions of things that we did with the orchestra, like um, Bright New Morning. That That's a three-part harp piece. And the third part of it, you know, which has all the, the high stuff at the top, you know. That would have the... And so on, would have that part going at the same time. Mm. So it was a great celebration of just fun stuff um, and try and keep that in a in a one harp version there's a few things I've not been able to make a one harp version of uh, my earth water wind and fire um, piece 
there's no way I can make that a one heart version, unfortunately. But uh, a lot of the other things I have, and I think they've they've gone very well. You know, trip to London. I mean, that was a great. That was one I composed for a friend of mine, and it's a jig. And she was my manager for three years, and she was also an old school friend and we hadn't seen each other for nearly 40 years and she ended up doing amazing things um and she became the controller of um channel four uh, bbc or no what do you call it channel four yeah um in the uk and she was also the person that directed all the millennium programs for bbc mm. and she was managing me for a time i hope she's well now she's she's fighting the big CA and I, I wish her all the best. And so getting this into print and making it available for other people to play for her uh, was was a priority. Um, Leap of Faith is just a fun, a fun thing. Lily White was for my mother-in-law. I had kind of just an imaginary ideal of her dancing her waltz. She'd been ill for two years. She was bedridden. It was tragic. But her husband, Terry, my father-in-law, was an extraordinary guy and I, I just had this vision of them waltzing around their kitchen Aww. and so that was the piece for Lily White and that, that was her name Lily White we knew her as Lil uh, Whelan's and Janet's just my funky funky jigs just uh, <laughs> Darling Bridget's Hand that's a piece of Carolyn um, but it was a very um, unique kind of I, I wanted it to be special I didn't want it to just be an ordinary setting of a tune with your nice easy chords underneath I wanted to do something a little bit more creative and this was because it was performed it was composed for um, Harry Seacombe's um, Songs of Praise which is a big Sunday evening program and one of my students was performing it so I had to I composed it for her to perform in the on the BBC program and a lot of people know it they don't know that it came from me necessarily I might be chasing them for copyrights now <laughs> I mean there, there's amazing things happening in the harp world now it's so it is exciting it's so good I mean I always wanted to get to the point where I was excited by what other people do mm. And that was a large part of why I also spent a lot of time with my wonderful students because I am now excited by what they do whereas in the beginning i was kind of oh, God, mm. you? <laughs> um you know go home and do your wee bit of practice go and play the session or whatever um and uh, so in the beginning it took me a while before i ended up being a colleague mm. um with a lot of the players that i taught and now sure this is you know, it's taken off on its own. It's great. Oh, you should be so proud. And I am. I'm, I'm I am. just honored to have a chance to to talk to you about all these amazing things that you've done. So oh, inspiring. Boy, it is very sweet of you to say that. I mean, it's been no effort to chat. So thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Oh, thank you so much. And, and take care and have a great rest of your evening. Thanks for listening to Moon Over the Trees Music and Theater Productions podcast. Dive into the show notes at moonoverthetrees.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. 